one of the things that has really changed over the last decade is we've been able to decrease the amount of time we have to wait for most things. Wouldn't you agree? So you can get a ride in minutes. You can get your food delivered to you without having to drive to the restaurant yourself. And that's not always a speed thing, but there's so many speed things. You can go to Disneyland and get a fast pass. So you don't have to wait in line for what's your favorite ride? Space Mountain, I'm there with you. Tower of Terror is close for me. Anybody? Cars Land, don't be afraid if you're 28 and need to admit Cars Land, that racing thing's pretty awesome. Um, and so that's there. And then you've got the, uh, the, the pre-check line at, uh, for TSA at the airport. Anybody riding that thing? Just letting us know how much. Yeah, so here, here's what. I want you to know the thoughts about a, from a commoner, okay? Here are thoughts from a commoner who has to be in the regular security line. It's such a phenomenon now. I hope that all of you go join the pre-check line. And then the line that you're trying to get out of is going to become the short line. And so I'm just playing... That's how the, this commoner is trying to set himself up. I don't travel uh, extensively enough to do that. Plus, I don't want to feel the privilege. Uh, so hopefully that will happen and my line will get shorter. I've been told, I've never tried this at home, but I've been told that you can actually swipe right and get a date without actually having to go meet the human being that you want to go on a date with. That's pretty amazing, right? And what's, some of you are like, oh man. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. As a pastor of this generation, uh, and, and a guy that's been married almost, I don't know, a little over 16 years now, uh, I, I don't get to practice that, nor should I, but I hear all kinds of stories, both an amazing stories. So I've done weddings here at Epic for people who met uh, over, over that kind of method. I've also heard horror stories, and so just be careful out there, all right? But there's no doubt that we've been able to see so many advancements, especially when it comes to technology, that enable us to decrease the amount of time we have to wait. And what happens is you and I get accustomed to that, don't we? We don't want to wait for anything. We're trying to, we're, right, if you're like me and you drive a car occasionally, uh, just occasionally, you, you think you can beat the GPS, right? You can do it faster. If In your daily life, it was amazing for our parents' generation to be able to get things overnighted to them in two days. And then if you grew up in the era that I grew up, then it became an overnight sensation. And now you can get the package before the night even comes itself. And so we've been able to do that, but we've gotten so accustomed to getting things without having to wait for those things, which is great in most realms. But then we take that into our spiritual life lives and we think there's something wrong with God when we recognize we aren't able to speed up his activity in our lives. Some of you now are trying to perhaps thinking you're going to go create some technology that will even speed up the hand of God in your life. But here's the thing about that. We see directives in the scripture all the time like this, Psalm 27, 14. Um, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And we don't want to wait for God. Here, here's what we want. We want there to be a short distance between God's promise and God's provision. We want there to be a really small space, right? When God says he's going to do something, we want him to do it before we go to bed that night. But that's just not how he acts. And though technology has changed, God's, I think, acting in the same way he's acted throughout history. So look at Abraham's life with this concept of short distance one between the promise and the provision. And so in Abraham's life, at the age of 75, God says to him, you will be a father to many nations. The only problem is he doesn't even have one child at this moment. And it's some 25 years later before Isaac ever comes onto the scene. And like we likely would have done, Abraham and Sarah doubted at times. They even literally, right, physically took things into Abraham's own hands at times and tried to short circuit or manipulate God's timing in that situation. If you look at the life of Joseph towards the back half of Genesis, it's an amazing story. We taught on Joseph's story in a series maybe four years ago, something like that. And uh, the series is called uh, when, when Life Crashes. So feel free to go back and watch the videos there. But in his story, he's 17 years old when God gives him this amazing dream. And this amazing dream is imagery where people are going to bow down 
before him. Well, he makes the mistake of telling his older brothers that they're going to be the ones who are going to bow down before him. Bad idea, okay? And this family thing is really crazy. Like, if you trace how families respond to people's unique calling, like, even if you look at what Jesus' family thinks about Jesus, like, I think the text is, uh, we've been reading the Gospels together, I think one of the texts is that his family thought he was out of his mind, right? So it's just, there's that family dynamic. But Joseph has this vision that people are going to bow to him. Only the next thing that happens is his brothers hate him, They make his father think that he's dead. They sell him into slavery. While he's a slave doing really good character work, he's accused of doing something to a woman that he didn't do. And now he's in prison. He does some dream interpretation in prison. And then he gets forgotten by the person who gets out of prison because of his dream. And so sometimes it takes a long time for God's good stuff to come from his promise to his fulfillment. Other times, it's not even that we're waiting for the good stuff to come, that sometimes God will allow us to be taken backwards. If you look at Joseph's life, but what's interesting in those 13 years between 17 and 30, at age 30, Joseph is finally employed into Pharaoh's service. He's second in command in all of Egypt, but he never could have been there if he hadn't have taken the trail that he took to get there. And I don't know about you, but it makes sense that I would question God or that you would question God when God says, here you go, and then he's like, wait for that. Even more so when God says, here's what I'm going to do, but I'm going to take you backwards because that's the only way I can take you forward. And I don't know about you, but I get tired of waiting. I think my timing is much more impeccable than God's timing. Anybody else? Anybody here kind of have that dialed up where your timing and God's timing are identical? Just looking for a place to be jealous or everything you want done, when you want it done, God does it precisely, you would be unique in all of history. You would be unique if you were in the scriptures. You would be the only one with that story. When you think even about when Jesus steps onto the scene, you can imagine that people wish he would have come a lot sooner and had lots of reasons to think he should have come sooner. So I don't know what you're in the middle of today, but I want to ask this question. What if we trusted God's timing on the front end? What if we trusted God's timing on the front end? Because when I finally see it, I'm like, okay, God, I trust you now. And he's like, no, 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 Ben, I don't want you to trust me when you see it. That isn't faith. And I know that Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I've got to have front end faith because if it's back in faith, that's not faith. Right? Any of us that are amazing, like, God, I believe in you so much for this thing after I got it. And so when you think about what you're looking for, what you're what you're dealing with right now in your life, can you trust God on the front end? Because let's be honest, we find ourselves in some moments that it's hard to trust God in. You might see, and lots of us see right now, we're in this national moment, and we're not sure that God can be trusted. We're thinking, doesn't God know what's going on? I mean, shouldn't God react, and shouldn't he act in history? You're in a relational moment. You're like, God, if you really existed, if you really wanted good for my life, like you promised in Romans 8, 28, that you will work good for those who love you, who are called according to your purpose, shouldn't you be doing something besides what it is you're doing in this moment in my life? If you find yourself in an employment situation right now, you're unemployed, you wish you had a different job, you wish things are going different at your job, you overlook for a promotion, you're like, God, if you see what I see, you would do something different than what it is that you're doing. And as we move into Esther's next stage of her story, I want you to see how God's timing works. So if you have a Bible, Esther chapter 6. If you need one, raise your hand. We can get one to you. Verses will be on the screen. And even if you come to church occasionally and don't ever like listen because you don't believe what we're reading, you should at least be entertained by chapter 6 of Esther. Like there are a few Hollywood scripts that are as uh, twisting and turning as Esther chapter 6. If you've been tracking with us throughout the series, by the way, all the podcasts are there, videos, whatever. Our team does a great job of having our church prepared for those things when you miss a Sunday. 
But if you've been tracking with us, then you know there are four main characters in Esther's story. There's King Xerxes. He's the king of the Persian Empire around 580 BC. And this all starts in his third year, or the reign of, during his third year reigning as king. And what happens is his wife Vashti does something that displeases him. He has her deposed. And then they have to find a new queen. And so he finds Esther. The king puts Haman as the top official in his cabinet. And Haman loves that because Haman is all about Haman. Haman is self-absorbed. Haman loves being a big-time player in the Persian Empire during this moment in history. And Haman loves it when everyone bows down before him and the king honors and recognizes him, but he doesn't like it when he's in front of Mordecai and Mordecai won't bow down. So he has planned with the advice of his wife and friends, some, some friends, that he's going to impel Mordecai on a pole. So that's his moment we're walking into. Mordecai, back in chapter 2, He's always hanging around the king's gate, and he overhears two guys plan to assassinate the king. He lets somebody know who lets Esther know, and Esther eventually is allowed to let the king know, and it gets written down in the chronicles of the king that Mordecai is the one who spared the king's life. And Esther, remember her last time, she goes to the king knowing it could cost her her life. The king doesn't kill her. He's pleased with her, and he says, what is it you want? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And Esther says, well, what I want you to do is come to a banquet, the king goes to the banquet with Haman. Haman's, he loves being the third will. Like some of you and I would feel awkward. He loves being there, getting selfies with the king and the queen. And then she says, I want you guys to come back to a banquet tomorrow. And so the moment we're walking into is the night between that day we'd left off last week and the day that Mordecai is, is, is there are thoughts that Mordecai is going to be impelled by Haman. Esther is approaching the king to ask for all of the Jews to be delivered and for their lives to be spared. And I want you to see in chapter 6 how God's timing works and how God works in time. So stand with me. 14 verses in chapter 6, but it flows pretty smoothly. Feel free to laugh when you're just like, this, real, this can't be real. So here's how the text begins. That night. <laughs> that night, the night we just walked into, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Interesting. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impelling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Hmm. So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, whomever that may be. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest on its head. You know that one. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect, do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman, it's like when your boss is like, hey, what kind of promotion should I give the person I want to honor? 
If it's me, let me know. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him. I think it's more like this. This This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Don't read the heading on chapter 7 if you have your Bibles open. Have a seat. I want to surprise you next week. That night, the king could not sleep. Out of all the nights, that night, the king could not sleep. And I don't know what your go-to is on those nights you can't sleep. I don't know if it's Facebook or Twitter or ESPN or USA Today or CNN. Hopefully, it's at least something healthy. But he doesn't have any of that. And so he's like, what would be the cure for my insomnia? Come and read to me from the Chronicles. Like, tell me about the amazing things that I might have forgotten in my reign. So it's on that night, but only, not only is it in that night, where the guy starts reading from, it's in that story of Mordecai being forgotten. Now, what's incredible to me, if we just want to look into it a little bit, is wouldn't it be amazing on nights you can't sleep? And somebody might need to invent this company, by the way, speaking of the start event on the 22nd. What if we started a company where we employed people in our church to go read to people whenever they couldn't sleep? It works for my kids, right? I mean, the back scratch is five bucks extra per hour, but we could get someone to read to us anytime we can't fall asleep. That would be incredible. But he doesn't have Twitter and all that, so he has this guy come read to him, and he starts reading, and the first thing he reminds the king of is that, remember, Mordecai saved your life. Mordecai saved, on that night, what are the chances? Is it merely coincidental, or are we seeing, again, Proverbs 21.1 come to life? which says, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. That God is able to make things happen. God is able to keep kings awake. God is able to have the king's attendant open up the chronicles and be right in the story that God wants to do some work in. Right in the middle of it, God is able to persuade because he is sovereign over all, even over those who think they are God. No, especially over those who think that they are God. So whatever it is you're facing when we look and go, we're in this moment, and I don't know how we're going to get out of it as a nation, as a people, as a city, as a church, as a couple, as a family, whatever. We're in this moment, and we need God to act. And right here, God begins to act on Mordecai's behalf. And remember, when he acts on Mordecai's behalf, we know that God is also acting on the entire Jewish community that lives in this Persian empire, all 127 provinces, not just there in the capital of Susa. And so when God begins to act, now what's amazing to me is to think, what if it was the next night that the king couldn't sleep? Mordecai would be dead. Mordecai would be dead. So, and what if, what if Esther at the first banquet had asked what she asked in this text? She needs a second banquet. How God works in his sovereignty and why we do the things we do, we need to be able to trust his timing on the front end. But can't you imagine Mordecai feeling like until this time he had been forgotten? He saved the king's life, and to this moment, the the king asked the attendant, what's been done for Mordecai? What's been done for Mordecai? Nothing. Now, if something had already been done for Mordecai, he probably wouldn't have a favor in front of him. Would you agree? Nothing's been done for him so far. But if I'm Mordecai, I feel like I have been completely forgotten. Remember, he hangs out outside the king's gate. You can imagine, he could have yelled 24 hours a day, seven days a week, remember what I did for the king. 
He could have tried to short-circuit God's timing. He could have manipulated things along the way, but he didn't do those things. He did what was right, but have you ever been in that moment where you're doing what's right and good doesn't come from it in the moment? Anyone, it's kind of like me. I don't know if you've ever tried to lose weight, but when you're doing all the right things, you're eating stuff that you promised yourself you would never eat, stuff that actually grows in the garden, you know, and you get on the scale the next morning, it's the same number. You're like, why did I give up donuts for the same number? Like, that's foolish of me. And sometimes when we're doing the right thing and God doesn't seem to notice, he seems to forget or other people seem to forget, we're just like, I shouldn't even do the right thing. You ever been there? But let me say this to you. Two things I think we learned from this moment with Mordecai. One is make sure you write down everything significant in your life. No, no wiretapping stuff, but you know, everything significant in your life, write it down. And number two is this. Even when it seems like everyone has forgotten you, God has not and God cannot. Even when it seems like everyone has forgotten you, the deeds that you've done, what you did for your boss, what you did for your spouse, what you did for your parents, what you did for your neighbor, when it seems like everyone has forgotten you, know that God has not forgotten you. Throughout history, people have accused, including myself, have accused God of forgetting about us. Even, and you're like, Ben, that must be for immature Christians. Well, those are the words of David. Those are even the words of Jesus on the cross where he quotes Psalm 22. Why, oh God, why have you forsaken me? In Isaiah 49, 14 through 16, there's a moment where God's people, they feel like God has forgotten them. And here's God's response. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, not likely, but though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. God has not forgotten you, and he cannot forget you. So if there's silence in your life right now, he has not forgotten you. Your walls, your boundaries are still before him. If there's a moment going on in your life right now, and you cannot see any trace of his hand of activity, you and I can still trust him that he sees us and that he knows us. And one of the things I want to say is if you're in that place, we want to say to you as a reminder, a visible reminder this morning, God has not forgotten you. And I think when you look at the landscape of our nation today, this is what we need to be doing to other groups of people. Wouldn't you agree? When we go down and help with the food bank at Bessie Carmichael for these kids, you would be amazed at how many of these kids' families are homeless. When we go down there, when we tutor them, we show up at a Halloween family fun night, we are saying to those kids, hey, we know things might not be good at home. We, might, we know you might not have a home, but we want to be a visible reminder that God has not forgotten you. When we sponsor over 100 kids in Uganda every single month, when I write to my sponsor child, Saddam, I want him to know the pilgrims have not forgotten you, Saddam, neither has God. When you stand with an immigrant friend in this church or somewhere in this community, and they're fearful, and obviously they should be, and we're standing with them and going, hey, I just want you to know, I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't have that kind of knowledge. I don't have that authority, but I am standing with you, and I want to be a visible reminder that God is still in this with you. When your friend comes to you and she says, hey, I want you to know my spouse has walked out on me. They want nothing to do with me. You need to say, hey, I know that it feels like they don't, and that could be true, and it might even feel like God doesn't, but I want you to know I want to be the visible presence of God saying to you in this moment as I listen to your heartache, God has not and God cannot forget you. So if you need to hear that this morning, take that in. If you need to be a conduit of that message to a group of people or to individuals this week, let's take that out. People need to know that because here's how this happens. When I'm in a good place, I think that you're all in a good place. Anybody else? And I have to forget, no, God brings me strength so I can give you strength. 
because I know the roles are going to be reversed soon, and I'm going to need your strength. And so one of the reasons we push for community constantly, I mean, look around. This room is just about full. I mean, there's a few seats here and there, but the reason we push for community is because we know that God has created us to be visible reminders of his presence and his activity to others, even when God may actually be silent. I can sit with you and tell you, remember what God did when you needed him to show up in this way? That God is still faithful. I don't know how long. I wish I could tell you tomorrow. I can't do that, but I can tell you that he's present and that he's faithful. And so this goes along, and then the uh, coincidences just, conti- just continue. The king says, who's in the court? Who's in the court? Haman's in the court. Why is Haman in the court of the king? Because he's coming to talk to the king about his desire to impel Mordecai. But the king wants to talk to whoever happens to be in the court about his desire to honor Mordecai. And in this moment, Haman comes in and he's ready to tell the king about Mordecai. But he thinks the king is talking about him when the king is talking about Mordecai. It's fascinating. And how do you get the timing of all this? And let me say something just so we're really clear today. I think oftentimes we're going to see during our time on earth how God does something and how he pulled it off. And we're going to be able to say, now I understand why there was a delay. But I also want to tell you, and if your hopes are somewhere else, I apologize. I also want to tell you that there are going to be things happen in our lifetime that during our lifetime we will not be able to say, now I get it. I don't think there's a day coming where someone will sit me down and say, or I will say to God, God, now I understand why my mom died at 46. I don't, I don't think that's coming. I don't need that to come necessarily because I don't, I don't think there's anyone on this earth that's going to go, oh, and then I'm going to go, of course. So I hate to say, but I do want to be honest and say there are some things you're not going to be able to get to the other side of on this earth and go, I know, I, I know now. So I don't know what you're in the middle of. So I'm not saying, hey, it's going to be resolved during your lifetime. I just think that God's going to resolve it. I think that God does work for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. I also believe that when we don't lean into God's purposes, it's going to be hard to hold him to his word. I can't demand that God do something when I'm not playing my part in the equation. And so uh, Philip Yancey, if you've never read any of his stuff, great writer, especially if you've ever struggled with doubt or a number of things. But in his book, Disappointment with God, he says this about God's timing and our understanding. He says, we remain ignorant of many details, not because God enjoys keeping us in the dark, but because we have not the faculties to absorb so much light. At a single glance, God knows what the world is about, thankfully, and how history will end. But we time-bound creatures have only the most primitive manner of understanding. We can let time pass. Not until history has run its course will we understand how all things work together for good. I love this last sentence, and it's challenging. Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. So I'm not here to go, hey, this moment we're in as a nation, it's going to end soon. I'm here to play my part, to urge you to play your part, but also we, we need God to do what he can do. You can imagine that when the slaves were in Egypt for the first 50 years, they thought, surely, God, you're going to do something now. After those first 50 years that were terrible, it was another 350 years before God acted. I don't know how. I mean, I do know how. I don't know why. I do know when. And God wants us to trust him on the front end. And so Haman comes in. He thinks, this has got to be me. Who else would the king want to honor in this way? Who else is a big shot in the kingdom? Who else does the king have a passion for putting in a high place? And because of that, he makes the big ask. 
He asked for the king's robe to be placed on this individual, and he asked for the king's horse to be granted him. In my research, I realized that there's no greater honor a subject can have than to don the king's robe and to ride the king's horse. And I love the fact that Haman stipulates which horse of the king he needs, right? I want the king's robe, and I want the king's horse, and which horse do I want of the king's? Oh, I want the one with the royal crest on the head. That's the one I want, because I know you're talking about me. And the king says to him, verse 10, go at once. He's saying, brilliant idea. Go at once. Get my robe. Get that horse with the royal crest. And do everything you've said. Now, what's interesting about Haman is that his suggestion, thinking it's about himself, is that one of the servants would lead out the honored individual through the city streets, pronouncing, this is what the king desires to do for the man he wants to honor. When I talk to my staff, I want to know what kind of way they would receive praise and recognition. And almost all of them said private praise over public praise. I'm like, come on, I want to make a big deal about you guys, like I'm doing right now. Like, no, no, private praise. Um, Haman, when I asked him the question, he's like, how public can we make it? Like, how big can we go? And so he's thought of everything. When they see me in the, bless you. When they, when they see me, there are a lot of things you got to let go. Other things you have to respond to in the moment. When they see him, he's thinking with the king's robe, riding the king's horse, the good horse, and proclaiming this is the man, the king. He just, he's all about attention, attention, attention. And the king says, I love your idea, essentially. Go and do everything you've just mentioned for Mordecai the Jew. Oh, man. How does that feel? Well, it depends on if you're Haman or Mordecai, right? (laughs) He's walking to the king to ask for permission to impel this man. The king can't sleep. The king wants to honor Mordecai because he's just been reminded that Mordecai is the one who saved his life. He's like, "Let's, let's honor him. He's like, go and do it, just as you've said. And can't you see... Haman, like, this is what's done for the man the king delights to honor. And if I'm Mordecai, I'm like, they can't hear you. They cannot hear you. Louder, please. And in this moment, his wife and his friends, or his advisors in this text, it says, they, they say, hey, this is the start of your downfall. And remember, it's been seven days since we've met here at Epic. It's only been one day since they told him, go impel Mordecai. Just one day. Just one day. Because God's got the king's heart and his ways in his hand, and he directs that however he wants to. Is there anything you're waiting on God to do in your life and you're thinking about bowing out? Is there anything you've already given up on God for and he's asking you to re-engage your faith and to re-engage your prayer life and your activity if necessary? You see, here's the thing. We believe anytime there's an equation, it goes like this. There's a part for God to play and there's a part for us to play. And so the first thing I want to say to you, if God's called you to act and you haven't acted, do not expect him to act on your behalf in a way that he's called you to. So when when we're lazy with our faith, we want God to do it all, right? So when he calls Moses and he says to Moses, uh, Moses, I'm coming down, Moses is like, that's awesome. When he says to Moses, and I'm going to use you, Moses is like, no no thanks. So is God calling you to do something and you need to step into it? Or have you done so far what God's called you to do and what you've got to do now is wait for him to show up? Would we be the kind of people that would trust God on the front end rather than merely thanking him on the back end, which we should do? But sometimes my life, my faith can just like thank you on the back end and not have trust on the front end. 
And I need people, and I need to look at myself. I need to look at some things that I've written down in my life and say, no, Ben, God has shown himself faithful before. He is a faithful God. And though you don't see his hand and you don't hear his voice, you can count on him. You need that. I need that in our lives. Even when it comes to how Jesus comes onto the scene as the Messiah, you can imagine the prophecies have been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And you can imagine all kinds of moments in the life of Israel, them thinking, what, now would be the great time for Messiah. Can you imagine being enslaved in, in, uh, in Egypt under Pharaoh? Can, can you imagine when King Nebuchadnezzar had exiled them from their homeland in Jerusalem and they knew the prophecies? Wouldn't you want to go, hey, Messiah, it's about time now. And we don't know why God delayed that. I don't know if it was that God needed the Roman Empire to get going so that Jesus would be born and be crucified in that kingdom. I don't know if that's why that has something in my mind to do with it. But Galatians 4, 4 and 5 say this about that. But when the, time, when the set time had fully come, God sent forth his, his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So even in that moment, I don't know why that was the right time. I just know from God's vantage point, which is so different than ours, right? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. They're so much greater than ours. I don't know why this was the moment. I just know in God's, sovereign, God's sovereignty, he knew this was the moment, and he sends the Messiah onto the scene in this moment. Not before then, not 100 years after then. He sends him in this moment. And I wonder if you might begin to open up to the possibility that God's timing is perfect, And you might begin to open up the possibility that it's not random that a church was started here and you, of all people, would be sitting in a church in downtown San Francisco on March the 5th. We think we know all the reasons why. I don't even know the reasons why. You don't even know the reasons why. And as we play our part, there's also this part in waiting, but waiting with a prayerful spirit. And I do believe this. There's no technology that can speed up God's activity, and I don't have time to explain all what I'm about to say. But what you see in Scripture is that our prayers affect God's activity and His timing. We don't take God hostage. Please, don't go there. But when you look at the Scriptures, so-and-so prayed and this happened. They got 15 more years of life. So-and-so prayed and they got pregnant. So-and-so prayed. And so here's what Eugene Peterson says, and he's a great one to read as well about anything. But Peterson says about this idea, he says, waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. If you're like me, you're tempted to take things into your own hands. Like, God, if you're not going to move soon enough, I will do it. A, you won't be able to do the God-sized thing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a God-sized thing. Waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to go, I'm not going to put my hands on it, God. I'm not going to manipulate or try to short-circuit this thing. I'm going to leave it to you because you have a perfect timing that I don't have. And someone once said, I think it was Tim Keller, he said that if we had the vantage point that God has and knew everything that God knew, then we would go, yep, your timing, that seems about right. But we don't. So let's lean into faith together. Let's lean in, not alone, but together. Remind each other that God has been faithful. Let's trace his faithfulness in the past, and let's help each other do that. And let that launch us into this faith-filled future on the front end, not the back end. Let's pray. God, I thank you for just what you're doing in this moment. God, there are people all over this journey in this room, and there we have skeptics and doubters people who've walked away, people whose faith is strong. God, we have a myriad of circumstances represented in our lives in this room. God, represented in our church, in our city. God, in the nation right now, we need to be people who know you've not forgotten us, and we need to otherwise be people who share with others you've not forgotten. You've not forgotten them. So God, whatever that looks like, 
If that's with a friend, if that's with a ministry, if that's uh, with our small group, if it is reaching out to the immigrants who are in our church, God, and saying, hey, I know you're fearful, but we stand with you. We want to be God's visible reminder to you in this moment. God, would you lead us? God, we have to leave the results up to you, and that is terrifying for high achievers. We want to be able to cause everything that we desire to be different. But in the meantime, God, we want to play our part, and we will wait for you to do your part. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. I hope there's a lot that you have at least to think about, to contemplate, to consider. And there are things that Shauna and I want in our lives. There are things that our church team wants in our church that's not present today. There are things that some of you want relative to what's going on in the White House and relative to what's going on in our city and the world. Keep it, giving God your desires, express those, but then surrender. And you be the answer and let us be the answer to the places where God wants us to play our part. But we cannot do what only God can do. But he does work all things together for good. The song is called Heart Abandoned. It's this idea that God, I don't see it all yet from the message, but I'm just gonna go, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna trust you. God, I want what you want. Let's have that as our starting point.